1: Thanks for joining me for act two of my chat with the brilliant Philodeloid. Gosh, it's kind of a, a little bit of a tongue twister that my English winter cold is not helping with. Philodeloid, 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 philadel That's getting better. Here's act two of my conversation with the brilliant Philodeloid.
2: Members of
0: the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Cake and Ms. Lloyd to the stage, please This is your beginners
1: When you're in the rehearsal room Do you always feel right? This is the right place for me?
2: I think so I mean, I think I I would like to have worked in Russia I think I would I, I, I got a, a scholarship in my 20s To go to watch Russian and Georgian Directors in rehearsal With Dominic Dromgul. I mean, an unimaginably <laughs> crazy experience. You know, they should make that movie, level. by the way. It was like a blind, the blind date yes. of all blind dates, where we didn't, until we arrived at check-in for Aerothlot, <laughs> I don't actually know we'd, whether we'd met.
1: Oh, this is a terrific film.
2: And we were totally abandoned by the people who sent us there. They just kind of bought us the ticket and gave us an address and... There was no food. There was no bath plug. I mean, we were queuing for lorries of cabbages, you know, to try and get one to cook for ourselves. Wow. Uh, anyway, let's forget the domestic um, challenge. <laughs> but the experience of being particularly... Moscow, we went there at a bit of a bad time, but, but, but Georgia, Tbilisi, and being in a rehearsal room, particularly with a director called Tumanashvili and the Georgian Film actor Studio, where the group had, he had literally all directors there taught, and they taught and rehearsed in the same day. So they would go to their class in the morning, lunchtime, they'd go over to work with their professional cast. But he had taken a whole year out of a drama school and kind of gone, you're all leaving Rada tomorrow, I'm taking all of you, and we're starting a theatre company and they were still together like 14 years later. And wow. they had each other's children and the children were all in the rehearsal room. And how very unlike our own, our <laughs> own system.
1: <laughs> because it overlapped with life too. Was that, life was that what feel? It was just it? the
2: continuity of relationship uh, between uh-huh. director and uh-huh. actors. They had shared history. So I think one of the things that's harder and, and why my experience of working on the Donmar Shakespeare trilogy over five or six years was so extraordinary. Was not that every single actor went through that entire period, but a core did, and some joined and then left and came back again because they we left them behind in America. And there was so much that was, in a way, resonant of this experience in Georgia in terms of the the family, the continuity. The risks taken, mm. the lack of everybody being terrified on day one of rehearsal. Mm. You started by asking me, you
3: know,
2: yeah. am I scared on day one of rehearsal? Yes, terrified, because there's so much expectation of you to, you know, from often from strangers to not land them in an absolute ditch, you know, over a very compressed period with escalating fear, <laughs> whereas if it's the same team, there's so much yeah. that's dealt with. Yes,
1: already taken care of, trust, understanding, I mean, you shorthand. Are, so
2: why? So, yes, I guess that experience, you know, working with Harriet, particularly, who, with whom I'd worked before on Mary Stewart. So she and I had really gone on work together over 10 years, I suppose. Yeah.
1: Well, this begs the question of, are you going to do more?
2: Uh, we want to. And whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's something that comes out of that group, I'm not sure yet. Hmm. You and Harriet
1: have had this extraordinary relationship. She played Brutus and Julius Caesar, Henry and Henry the Fourth, Prosper and the Tempest. And as you say, you'd worked with her and Mary Stewart with Janet McTear, the Schiller play that you did in London and in New York. And Is it always, I mean, it does sound like a sort of utopia. And and by the way, tell me if this is one of my glib formulations, but do you feel like it's sort of, I was so struck by that world of lawnside school. Do you feel a little bit like you've been chasing that all-female utopia, artistic utopia? That's interesting.
2: I mean, it was certainly, you know, it did take me back to, you know, when you do Twelfth Night, you don't have to think, ooh, am I going to be either Mariah, Violet, or Olivia? It's sort of like, you know what? I think I'll play Sir Toby. I mean, that was the vibe at school Hmm. where you just, it was like all the parts were available. And so maybe there was something of that. It was really funny how the actors felt in the room. And you may have, you know, read me saying this before, but how even Harriet, who'd played... Cleopatra at Stratford, in the first sort of few weeks of rehearsing Julius Caesar, would say to us, "I've only ever felt entitled to say a small, you know take up a very small portion of the cake of conversation in the room." So it was it was really yeah. extraordinary how people you know they'd go home and their partners would say, "What what are you playing?" Oh, "Um, Decius Brutus." "I played that." <laughs> I, what was that?" the hell's going on here and it was just Casca <laughs> uh, yeah what? I was one of my what but yeah it was um, maybe it was reaching for some kind of
1: freedom yeah, yeah the, expensive the, all, world. freedom
2: but it was interesting that Harriet who was the one who had had all the chances by the standards of the rest of them uh-huh. was the one going no this is the same has been the same for me too all right. this time
1: you said something Brilliant about that. You said, um, I didn't want my niece going to any more classical theatre and thinking that she was the one sitting in the corner mooning over the leading man. (laughs) 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 I mean, I suppose it begs the question of what your niece would think about the state of classical theatre now. But I love the, 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 the idea is very clear that, you know, even in Shakespeare, even with those extraordinary parts that he wrote for women, I think you're right, statistically, they still, and as Harriet pointed out, they still take up a relatively small amount of the total space. So to have all the space must have suddenly felt like, well, being back in the freedom of what you describe at, uh, at school, but also
2: yeah, I mean, being
1: made aware of the limitation that existed before. Yeah.
2: I mean, Chris Jumbo just came in. She played Mark Antony in mm. the first Caesar, and she just said most of the time in most of the roles, and she'd played, you know, Nora and mm. Rosalind and all sorts, I'm literally firing on one of my eight cylinders. Mm. That's all I need to do what I'm doing,
3: mm.
2: and suddenly to be given Mark Antony or you know Harriet to be given Brutus. They were finally they needed you know more breath to get through this it it was It was thrilling mm. and we had amazing support from people who might have been a little bit who do they think they are and what the hell's going on. I mean, we had wonderful support from Ian McKellen, Brian Cox, people who came to see it mm-hmm. and wrote to us and go, you know, I think Ian was very, very complimentary about the fact that the actors were representing people who knew why they wanted to do Julius Caesar. So right. the women, they were playing women in prison and they he felt that coming on stage as women in prison, who were obsessed by freedom and justice, Uh you understood why they'd chosen Julius Caesar. Uh, And I, in fact, I'd taken the play into Holloway Prison and workshopped it with these women and said, you know, this may seem so far away from your life. What do you think? And one said, no, it's not far away. We find it highly suitable. So, that feeling of why am I why am I performing this play rather than, ooh, I've been cast in this rather wonderful role of Brutus or I've got... Right. There was a sort of need. But, yeah. but as I say, we had a lot of support from a lot of people who'd played those roles, which was really encouraging yeah. for the gang.
1: Just quickly back to Harriet, and then I'm very conscious that I'm taking out your very precious time and you've got all these other things to do. You said in this Russian way how lovely it is to have... Oh sorry go ahead. Yeah, you, no, you wanted go to say on. something.:
2: No, that's it. You're Sure. had to have the, the family, the ensemble. Yeah.
1: I completely understand why it would take away all the cold parts of the bed that you have, you know, in a rehearsal room where you've sort of working your way into trust and intimacy and ease freedom. But is it always easy directing a friend? Can it only gain by being intimate and historical and known? Or is it it sometimes difficult to tell them something hard?
2: I think it's always easier working with a friend. Yes,
1: always. What does she need from you, do you think? Harriet. Hmm. I
2: mean, she did once say to me early on, having a director who knows, has a clue is a bonus.
3: (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not, okay.
2: Harold, if you're listening, I'm not quoting you here. But you did say, I'm I'm paraphrasing you, you said that you sort of expected to muddle along surviving. (laughs) But if there was a director there who helped, it was a bonus.
1: Yeah, I think think she speaks for all actors. Do you call her Harold?
2: It's a bit of a nickname. Got it. She particularly, I think, thrives on a mixture of quite forensic work On the text. And she has an extraordinary ability, freedom in improvisation. You know, the process is a process, but it develops, it develops according to, for me, according to the needs of the actors and the needs of the room. And it's not just everyone has to, on every single show, do every single one of these 150 things on day one to 51. So I suppose we spent, a lot of time working in a very forensic way on the text. And that meant not just understanding every beat of it, but but sort of working on it as a musical score.
1: Is that work you do together separately? With,
2: with the whole company. The whole company. And where everyone was reading everyone's mm. parts, understanding mm. you know what everybody was saying, every word, thinking about just the kinetics of it, uh, the, the, the sort of, yeah, the musical score of it vowels and consonants a lot of technical stuff and also applying actions and objectives to it which some people would say you can't do that with shakespeare because it's too sort of numinous it it sort of you can't you can't fix it in that way we felt entirely the opposite that somehow to experience the wonder of its sort of ambiguity that the sort of you know the the sound of the of the words, the onomatopoeic nature of it. Blah blah. It, it it it. We we were really confident. I'd seen great Shakespeare where this actions and objectives had been used on the text, and mm. I found it absolutely riveting to listen to. Very fast spoken, which I always think is really good in Shakespeare. But where you were making changes of color every time there was a change of thought. Mm. So anyway, Harriet enjoys a lot of that sitting around trying to really analyze the text and get everybody to understand and own the whole thing. And yet she is the most fearless improviser. Hmm. So you can put her, she's like a fish in the sea on stage. She's really much more neurotic about how to get her car in the car park than she is about anything that happens to her in the theatre. Mm-hmm. There will usually be some kind of meltdown about the gate to the car park's sure. shut and I can't get in or, you know, I'm on a double yellow.
1: She sounds like me. That sounds um, but exactly be, but like me. once
2: she's in the room, she's, yeah, she's she's in her element.
1: And have you ever had divergent opinions about something? Yes, huh. very much so. Mm.
2: Things that she really felt she, she didn't couldn't understand why. I remember I asked her to sit with her back to the audience for the first fifteen minutes of Mary Stewart. Actually, she had entered the space before this moment, but then I asked her to sit with her back to the audience, maybe for twenty minutes mm. in in a huge scene, and she was like, "What's going to happen? I will lose. I'll lose them. I'll lose them."
1: Did she? I can't remember. I mean, I did, did she sit with her back she to the did, audience? She did,
2: yeah. Um, not because I said, look, you know, you're fired if you don't sit with your back to the audience. It's more just a gradual try it. Let's see yeah. if you're prepared to let it go. Gradually by experiencing it by other actors, I suppose, also. That's the thing. As a director, you if you are in combat with an entire company, with something you're trying to do, something is very seriously wrong. Right. And happily that hasn't happened for a long time. But if it did, I'd really be questioning whether I'm in the right, huh. right job. I think that with a group, you're sort of the thing, it's like sailing or climbing a mountain. You know, if you're not, if you don't feel we're all moving towards mm. forward in some kind of concert. Mm or the thing is not flowing downhill, then, then something is wrong because actors want the director to help. If you choose the right people, you know, making the, the Shakespeare trilogy sound like a, a kind of utopia. It wasn't. There were all kinds of tensions within it. But that's, that's the nature of the, of the struggle for ideas and change.
1: Did you see Harriet in, you must have done, <clears throat> in uh, House of Bernardo Yes, Alba. I did. She stands with her back to the audience quite a lot, and it's amazing. What a back. I mean, that's a great back, apart from anything else. Yes. Two more more questions. Is it possible to answer this? Are there shows that have changed you, do you think? Shows you've either seen or that you've made that have tipped you out the other side a different person?
2: Definitely shows that have changed me. Shows I've seen that have changed me. And eras of theatre going that have changed me. I think that when I first came to London in the 1980s, I was a runner at the BBC having just left university and I went to masses of theatre. I mean, I was constantly queuing for returns for this, that and the other thing. And reading Time Out and City Limits like they were the meaning. I, mean, mm. I guess, like now, people scroll through Instagram. No, I, I would the read thing. them from cover yeah. to cover. I saw a lot of theatre in the Lift Festival over a couple of years, a number of years. International Festival of Theatre. So it was theater. all theatre not in the English language. Right. Theatre that had come from Poland. I mean, Tadious Cantor. I saw theater from brazil a lot of theater from eastern europe from russia a lot of theater from russia lev dodin
0: mm. etc
2: an mm. incredible show not by him but called cerso at riverside this was just not just about language the fact that one didn't understand the language but was experiencing it on another level but that the very Theatre making was so radically different to anything we saw here, and so yes, I can be have my mind blown. My mind was blown by seeing Anna De Vere Smith, who's yeah, know, I do at the Royal Court performing Notes from the Field, right? A, a one-woman verbatim show, yeah. which was left me in convulsions of grief and confusion. So I'm open to persuasion. But I also get very impatient. Can leave at half-time. Probably not before half-time.
1: It's a big deal when you leave. Because everyone knows when you're in.
2: Well, I don't don't think these particular occasions people would have known I was in.
1: Philip Larkin, whose reputation is come under some fire <laughs> justifiably in recent years, did say that it was one of the <clears throat> excuse me, great liberations of life, realizing that you could leave at half time. He went to see a, play- a Playboy of the Western world, and said, Am I enjoying it? No, I've never seen such balls and he said, And I walked out into the afternoon sunshine. And it's true that, that theatre has a kind of well, I suppose it doesn't always have this. I felt trapped in a play the other day and I felt claustrophobically trapped, like you're trapped in a lift. Like if you're not enjoying it, you can't get out and it's the worst thing. And there was no interval, so I couldn't fill it mark in it. And there is
2: no excuse, I I don't think, anymore. I mean, I know we all huh. have different opinions about things and one person might be unable to receive something that's exquisite for all kinds of reasons, and therefore feel trapped. But I would take a slightly more brutal approach, and that I, I I certainly think there is no excuse for being dull. And I think that it's too expensive now. I mean, it's just so expensive. Right. You know, I can go and watch QPR for eighteen quid, and that's theatre. Sure. And that really is theatre. Yeah. But you know, ninety minutes straight through. They're talking about. Shows in the West End, people paying 250 quid to see shows. And you're like, what?
1: Don't be dull then. If I do end up spending that, don't be dull.
2: That's got to be Lady Gaga for me, for 250 <laughs> quid. <laughs> it
1: better be Gaga.
2: It really had.
1: Better not be Lady Windermere's fan. I mean,
2: I don't mind if it's one person, one actor standing on the stage in a spotlight. right? You know, Fiona Shaw doing The Wasteland. Yeah, I would have bought someone a ticket for £250 right. to see that right. if there was only one seat left. So it doesn't need to be, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't need to be expensive, but my God, it needs to be life-changing for that amount of money.
1: What do you still want from theatre that you haven't already had or got?
2: From watching it or making
1: it? I think probably from making it.
2: From making it. I guess it's a constant, you know, you're just a student constantly trying to work in a better way, work more efficiently, courageously. I think I've been very lucky to, I'm actually not quite answering your question, but I'm more answering what I'm now mindful of, which is that I've had the opportunity to work on plays and projects that now I'm not sure I should be the person to work on those for example I got the opportunity to work on a musical about Tina Turner and I thought I would never do another musical I thought I shouldn't because I felt like I'd been so lucky with the first one I'd done I would never ever have the luck twice and so let someone else have a go at it but just somehow a combination of the unbelievable tenacity of the producer in deciding you're doing this and I want you to do it. And i thinking, thinking, well, I don't know why, and pushing back and I can't do this again. Then the combination of the opportunity to meet, and first I thought it would be just meet, but actually sort of work with Tina. And mm-hmm. the second thing, working with the writer Katori Hall, and the whole thing just felt like, I was so lucky and privileged to be asked to be part of this team that I said yes to it. But I think that in future, that couldn't be me.
1: Huh. Because of the African-American yes. experience yes. that it comes from?
2: Yes, definitely. I think that things have to change, are changing happily, but not fast enough. And who has the right to tell what story is being interrogated has to be interrogated with all sorts of complexity around that yeah it's complex and people of your gender and ethnicity you know white guys in in both craft craft side of um the profession and i'm sure actors are getting less work than they used to. That's going to be painful.
1: We've had a good run for 2,000 yeah, years. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, it hasn't been bad.
2: We could a period of, we need a period of rebalancing. So therefore... Are you
1: encouraged by, by how the rebalancing is, is happening? I think Do you it's think not it's happening?
2: fast enough, right, but right. it will, you know, little things will make a difference. I think the fact that indu has got a job leading the National Theatre yeah. Is symbolically absolutely gigantic huge, because yeah. a person of colour has not run one of our major institutions. Right. So I think that's that will make a difference. Because sure as hell, she notices stuff that hard as we try, she's still ten leagues ahead. Yeah. So I think that's very, very positive. But there's you know, there's a huge issue about the ownership of means of production in commercial theatre that until there are less white producers things aren't going to change mm. massively mm. certainly on broadway and the west end so what do you do and not to mention you know actors being trained there is a long way to go
1: yeah coming back to grenfell and and the business of stories being able to pierce us in ways that sort of you know, statistics can't, you know, maybe that's that's where what we do is useful to highlight these things more and better.
2: Definitely. I think they can make us feel implicated in a way that statistics struggle to do. They can make us feel part of things, that we can make change. I mean, it, it's so hard because you think... I'm marching on the street for something and I go on marching and so, does, so do hundreds of thousands of other people. It doesn't make a blind, doesn't appear to make a blind bit of difference. What agency do any of us have to affect change? It's easy to feel helpless, but there are ways mm. and theatre is one of them.
1: How is your level of nervousness now and how is your level of feeling self-conscious about the sort of retrospective aspect of talking about yourself?
2: Now we've got to the end of the podcast. You get over yourself, don't you? When you know you're not on telly. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice.
1: That's one of the very good things about this format. No one gets to see us. It's a relief for me.
2: It is. I mean, if they saw where we were, they'd be shocked.
1: It's true. Thank you very, very much for doing this. Thank you.
2: Thank you for asking me, Johnny.
0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All
1: right. There goes Philida Lloyd through the stage door, ladies and gentlemen. That was great. Thank you so much, Philida, for giving me that time. As I said, almost at the beginning of our chat, we don't... Know each other terribly well, but well, one of the great privileges of doing this is I feel I do know her better, or at least I got to really hear her unvarnished honesty about her life in the theatre. What a life it's been! My goodness, so interesting to talk to. And my guest next week is or has been one of her very brilliant leading ladies. She is no other than Harriet Harold Walter, Dame Harriet Walter, one of the greatest actresses you'll ever see. And as you'll hear in next week's conversation, just as fascinated about thinking on the subject of a life in the theatre as she is in doing it. She's one of the great thinkers, processors about her art and the life she's led in the theatre. Please join me for that. Thank you so much to my brilliant producer, Ben Backhouse, who makes all this possible. Thanks to the musicians, Iggy and Phoebe Cake. Oh, and it really, really, really helps if you rate, review, and subscribe. I know it can be a pain, but honestly, trust me, if you enjoy this podcast, it makes such a difference in Podland. If you give me a little rate, review, subscribe, all that, It really helps. I love doing these podcasts. I hope you enjoy listening to them. And there'll be many more
3: with your support. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny.